Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Hey everybody, this is Felix Kruger, dialing in live from Sydney, Australia, uh, here with Devin McDermott, reporting for duty for another action-packed episode of This Month in Sales Enablement, October edition. I cannot wait to dive in to all the topics that we have prepared. But first of all, let me introduce you to my co-host, Devin McDermott. Welcome. Hello, Felix. I am so thrilled to be here with you today, where we're going to discuss what's hot and what's not in the world of enablement and everything in between. So it's going to be a good one. I feel like we have always so much to talk about. So the challenge is almost to actually boil it down and just focus on the things that really matter. Yeah, let's dive right in and take a look at what we have here for our audience. We've got a few insights from the last few weeks of the podcast. I just want to listen in and also pick your brain, Devin, on your thoughts on those different topics. So the first one that we have here was from the onboarding panel. Devin, you were also part of that. It was you, me, and also Georgia Watson. That was a special episode because for the first time, we actually had a panel discussion, which was a whole lot of fun. So typically, it's more of a one-on-one -on -one discussion, but this time around, it was actually a group, which I really enjoyed. Let's take a listen on what Georgia had to say in that episode. And she was doing all the right things. The onboarding program was done and she was out there. She was killing it. She was set to achieve her targets and meet all the defined ramp criteria that came with her onboarding. But you know what? She was doing such a good job that the competitors came knocking on her LinkedIn door and they opened the checkbook. And then, of course, Anna is out the door. So successful onboarding, I think, is not just about making the ramp criteria, which many of us think it is. It's about really setting someone up for long-term success. All right. So Georgia Watson on the onboarding, using storytelling really nicely here. So for anybody who's been following the last couple of live streams, storytelling is a big topic that is on my mind. We've reviewed a book on that one as well. So if you want to tune in some of the last couple of podcast episodes for this month in sales enablement. But just to talk about Georgia's comments. So she was telling a story which really reflects the relevance of the culture component of an onboarding program. So typically sales enablers always really focus on the ramp time, right? Which is the North Star for any onboarding program. And then along the way, you have all the training and coaching that is associated with it. But the point that she made here, I found really interesting, which is also around the cultural component and really making sure that reps feel at home when they started a new business. Devon, I want to ask you, what is your experience in that space? So how much emphasis have you seen being put on onboarding programs with a view on the cultural component to actually make sure that not only the technical skill is being taught, but reps are also being made feel at home? So what is your view there? Yeah. Thankfully, I've seen so much more of it in recent years, but historically, it's usually a race to the first call, the first meeting, just give them exact need to know at a boot camp, get them on the phones. That doesn't serve anybody, as we all know, right? Onboarding can't just be a moment or a box checking initiative to make enablement look good or to get the ramp reduced, right? We owe it 
to the people that we're bringing into our organization to get them comfortable with our organizational culture, with the team culture, understanding who are the people that I'm working with? What are the things I need to do? And really immersing them in your organization and the best way to do things. And I think on the episode, we actually talk about the drivers of motivation, but it's really leaning into what is going to inspire someone to want to stay in your organization, to not go and chase the next title or a bigger check, but knowing that we are investing in their autonomy, their mastery, their purpose, and making sure that we are giving them an environment to ramp, ready, grow, be coached, and really develop their skills beyond just, hey, go take that first call, go do that thing. So it's taking care of the person and not just using them as a commodity to complete a task. And again, thankfully, in recent years, I've seen so much more of that built into programs, even part of like new hire orientation into sales onboarding. But a lot of companies still skip it. To me, it's one of the most important elements of any onboarding program. No, I couldn't agree more. I think it's probably counterintuitive, but like putting emphasis on the cultural component and making people feel at home actually contributes to the other part as well, right? Exactly. Because if you think about the sort of mindset that's required to really perform on a high level, I think all those distractions and all those feelings that you have of starting at a new business, you know, like feel like everybody's watching you, everybody's judging you feeling at home and letting go of that and really being able to achieve that flow state and really feel like you're in a safe space and you're able to focus on practicing your craft, Yeah, I think is really the ideal scenario. So Right. And being given the latitude. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested to hear also from our audience, if you've seen any sort of innovation in that space, what sort of innovative things are being done around making people feel at home quicker beyond just that typical merch pack that people uh, <laughs> receive and photograph for LinkedIn. I think that is nice, but that's not a reflection of a culture. Yeah, It's a nice welcome gesture, but I think the proof is in the pudding and you really need to walk the talk and really make sure that that feeling is conveyed of people feeling at home. The next insight that we have was from Dave Lickman, who is a recruiter in the enablement space. So I want to say he's the only recruiter that solely focuses on enablement. Do you know any others, Devin? I don't, and I'm obsessed with everything Dave is doing. So no, he's incredible. I'm a fan. I go on record and say I'm a fan. Yes. <laughs> he puts out great content and he does something that I really appreciate, which is translating the market exposure that he has into value to the broader community, which I also try to do a lot. So I, I certainly appreciate what he does there. And let's take a listen in what he had to say about recruiting sales enablers. My crude metaphor is, if you were to ask me to go out and find three really good Ruby on Rails developers, I wouldn't have the language to assess how good they are as Ruby on Rails developer. I literally don't have the language. I wouldn't know one question asked or the words to assess. And that's an extreme example compared to what we do. But I think in the same vein, the average recruiter, and even sometimes the CRO, they don't know how to ask the right questions to assess best practices. I want to ask you, Devin, so you're obviously hiring enablers. That's not a problem for you. You've hired a lot of people and you know all the ins and outs. And so you know what to ask for. But when you've been hired in the past and without uh, naming any names of companies, what has been your experience around the subject matter expertise and how well did you feel 
the hiring managers really understood sales enablement when you were talking to them? It's wild. So I have lived personally so many of the scenarios that you and Dave cover in this episode. So shameless plug for you and Dave, this is an amazing episode worth listening to. And when it comes to a company sort of knowing they need enablement and either you guys talk about this, not wanting to invest the money to bring in the right person to get them where they need to go or not building the right environment for that person to be successful or not knowing what that right environment is. So a lot of hiring managers, and for me, it's usually folks that have been in the C-suite at smaller companies. It starts with this, like they know they need enablement, but their why is sometimes a little bit nebulous, right? So sometimes it's to solve a one-off problem, like, okay, we need better skills training, or we know we need manager coaching, or they might even say like, we're about to hire a bunch of salespeople and we need onboarding. Or more common than not, which is why I think we have this very confused perception of what enablement is, they've seen enablement work well at another company they've worked at, and they want to try to replicate it in their new business without actually understanding, again, the infrastructure needed to support it. And they, again, they might have a picture in their head of this final state, perfect enablement, and they want to replicate it, but with one person. And most of these folks don't fully understand that their business strategy and maturity can directly impact the person in profile they should be hiring, and that person's ability to be successful in the role in their organization. So it's a little bit of a, people know they need it, they know they want it, they don't really know what enablement does or should be responsible for, but they've seen enablement fix a problem before. And so that's where you get these profiles or roles that are scoped that are very either way too simple or way too broad or trying to fill too many gaps. And so what I find is that I often have to go in and educate some of those folks around, hey, so what exactly do you want this role to do? What do you think enablement means? And in a very kind and, and professional way, but more often than not, again, at smaller companies or companies that may even be larger and are introducing enablement, they're not sure what they're looking for. And again, there's usually, I'll say, what problem are you trying to solve? And let's unpack that. And so then you can start to get to what they're really looking for. And I've definitely been in situations at the end of an interview where I'm like, hey, I think you really need product marketing or you're looking for sales operations and that's okay. So it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I think it's even more reason and we'll touch on that in the next clip that we will listen to. But I think it comes down to the ability to actually convey business value as well. If you talk to somebody who doesn't know the ins and outs, so the answer to how it's done or what is being done, as an enabler, you need to be really good at explaining the outcomes that you've achieved. So why you've been doing certain things. This is something that everybody can relate to. And this certainly adds credibility if you're able to relate your sales enablement activity to tangible business outcomes, mm -hmm. which the hiring manager might be able to relate to and really understand. So, and that again, like just proves that you're really focused on creating bottom line results for the business rather than just doing sales enablement activities, right? which obviously doesn't pay the bills, unfortunately. So interesting one. And that also is a good segue into the next conversation. So I spoke to Paul Butterfield, who is also quite well known in the sales enablement space. So he runs the SES Stories from the Trenches podcast. And we specifically spoke about how to prove the business value of enablement. And he gave some great pointers, but I just want to share a comment that he made with you. Let's be clear. We've seen companies lay off a third of their sales force. And in that case, you're cutting deep across all departments, most likely. But by doing that and having that kind of program, I do really believe that it 
is going to have your organization and your team viewed as a strategic partner and not as easily cut. All right. So again, there was some reference to the recent layoffs in the U.S. in particular. So a lot of companies started laying off people in preparation for the pending downturn or the ongoing downturn. And a lot of people in the sales enablement space have been suffering during those cuts and a lot of sales enablement teams have had a reduced headcount or even have completely been laid off. And he was particularly talking about how proving the business value can really prepare you for those sort of situations and really position sales enablement as a strategic partner and really make sure that it is seen as indispensable when those sort of conversations around layoffs happen. So my question to you, Devin, it strikes me like looking at the businesses that you've worked for in the past, sales enablement really seem to have a high profile and you've had a lot of resources that you've been giving to build your empire. <laughs> <laughs> have you encountered situations where you're really struggling to make people understand the business value of enablement or like to actually translate what you were doing into business value? And if that was the case, how did you go about it? Yeah, it's definitely been a challenge in previous roles. Either we don't have the right technology to help support some of those metrics, but I think it comes down to, is the organization actually ready for enablement? And are we existing in an environment where we can show business value? So I've definitely joined companies in an enablement role where I've said to myself, they're not ready for me. They don't have yeah. the infrastructure. <laughs> they don't have the strategic planning muscle. They are not tracking metrics in a specific way that I can come in and say, my onboarding program is going to reduce ramp by 20%. It's really like, okay, we have to stand up the program. We have to inform back to the business. And so I sort of was forced to become a strategic partner to my leadership team in so many organizations because I would say, hey, you want these results? We need a sales process. We need a methodology. I'll help you build it. We need the infrastructure and the framework to build those repeatable motions that we can then track and assess and iterate on. And again, this is more of like a smaller organization or a startup, but it really helped me again to flex my strategic muscles and say, hey, we want to accomplish all of these things. We want to deliver all of these products. What are we trying to impact? What are we trying to do? And when organizations are not thinking about that outcome, you get them thinking in a different way. And so in so many places, I've been able to help kind of stand up our OKR process, our strategic planning process. And build that partnership with RevOps. So if I didn't have the metrics I needed, we were building it into our roadmap. Again, I've been in some really interesting situations to your point, Felix, where I was going through some of our other articles and I'm like, technically I've been part of revenue enablement orgs for years, but unintentionally it was, okay, we have one person who's building these programs. Let's get CS into the group. Let's get support in there. And so it's finding a way to, if you don't have the infrastructure, the support, the strategy that you need, how can you inform back to the business and help create better efficiencies across the board if you're in that particular situation. But one other note, if you are coming into a business that has all those things, which is amazing, I am jealous. I think it's also important to be prepared with your spiel or your overview of what does enablement mean? What is working with enablement? What are the metrics that we look at? How do we think about program impact? And I have a little like toolkit that I share in every new business with all of my stakeholders to share exactly that. We are so much more than training. We are so much more than delivery and execution and consumption. And setting that stage right out of the gate has tended to be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we talk about what makes a good enabler, and I think that is one of the core skill sets, that empathy 
not only towards sellers and sales managers, but also the empathy towards senior management mm-hmm. or senior executives. We always see them as being like those really high profile right. people that are kind of pulling the strings in the background. But ultimately, they're also people just like everybody else who just need to be told. And, you know, like you need to have that empathy to really bring it in the context of their world and really break it down that way. Just because somebody is a senior in an organization doesn't mean that they know or understand everything. So I think those people are really good at what they do, but sales enablement is still something new enough that warrants some education on that front. So yeah, I think that's a really important skill to gain as an enabler at that stage of enablement is really being able to translate that to senior management. So yeah, couldn't agree more. Even if you are in a a director role or a manager role, it's having the EQ and and being comfortable enough to say, hey, CEO, I want to support your business. I want to help contribute to the bottom line. Here's what I need from you. And and having the the stakeholder acumen to be able to have those conversations and also the knowledge to know what to ask for, it can be game changing, but you have to kind of ignore the the hierarchy or the levels and say like, if we can partner, this is going to be an incredible relationship, an incredible successful program. I cannot not take advantage of the segue because, and this is exactly a session that I'll be covering as part of the Trust Enablement Summit. For those of you not familiar, Trust Enablement is a community that was previously started by John Moore. And for the very first time, he is running an event. And I'm already a massive fan because he basically tries to change the or disrupt the sales enablement event space and move away from those really high ticketed in-person events and make it a virtual session that combines a whole lot of enablers out of all kinds of different time zones with very interactive sessions that really allow you or the attendees to be part of it and really get some value out of it and walk away with value. So I'm a big fan of that format. And that one is coming up this is not the sponsored announcement, by the way. I'm just a fanboy. <laughs> and I'm also part of this event, just like Devin. So yes. it makes sense for us to actually call that out. So it takes place from October 25th until October 27th. So on October 25th, is in the Americas region. Then we've got Europe and Africa on October 26th. And then APEC on October 27th. And apparently John Moore will attend all of those events and will be present the entire time. So I suspect he won't be sleeping for three days. (laughs) Good on you, John. But we will be talking about how to leverage sales enablement as momentum in my session. So this is pretty much in line with what we were just talking about in terms of the stakeholder management. The session is really designed to equip enablers with the tools to manage certain challenges that they have internally in terms of the political dynamics and also the structural challenges that might be in place to really communicate the value as good as they can and also to leverage the momentum that the whole sales enablement space currently has. So it's a pity not to take advantage of that and really realize the potential in your current role, which is why I want to talk about that. So the reason why I feel I can talk about that topic is not only because I've worked in big enterprises where a lot of that's was happening and you really had to navigate those politics, but also because as a sales enablement consultant, I work with a lot of different businesses and my main job is delivering those sales enablement strategies and implement those initiatives. But then my second job is 
typically to help those enablers that I deal with to really navigate those internal challenges. So I've learned a lot over the years, and this is my attempt to pass on some of that. Lots of other different awesome sessions coming up as part of this event as well. We have Dave Lickman, the recruiter, talking about nailing the interview, telling great enablement stories. We have, and I'm completely going to butcher this name. Sorry if you're listening. It's Cebu Siso Somi from South Africa, and he talks about Ubuntu, the bedrock of sales enablement. Those of you not familiar, Ubuntu is the South African spirit of brotherhood. It's basically a concept from South Africa. Famously, the Chicago Bulls in the 90s really adopted this sort of mantra. So he'll be talking about how that relates to sales enablement. Then we have Damien Piggott run a panel about mental health and well-being for go-to-market teams. So also really excited about that one. Lots of different other sessions. So the list of people presenting and running those workshops at the event is really long. Devin, you're also running one session. What is that one all about? I am. I'm so thrilled for this one. I'm partnering with the fabulous Taylor Vincent, who's the senior manager of enablement at a company called Handshake. And we're going to be discussing considerations for building an enablement function, everything from understanding organizational readiness, which we talked a little bit about today, to enablement hiring profiles, and once in place, making sure that you are establishing enablement as a strategic function. The structure is going to be a light lecture with hopefully tons of audience participation, brainstorming, knowledge sharing. I cannot wait for this one. And it's on October 25th. Awesome. For me personally, I think this will be a really interesting experiment to see how this sort of event format will go. Yeah. And particularly because we have the contrast happening a few days later here in Sydney, actually, which is the Sales Enablement Summit run by the Sales Enablement Collective. So yeah, very curious to see how that will go. I will have the direct comparison, you know, virtual, highly interactive workshop format versus a in-person, more traditional format. So we'll see how that goes. But I already have sort of realized the kind of key benefit of the sort of in-person event format for me, because I've already lined up all these catch-ups with people that I have known for ages, but never caught up in person. So lots of catch-ups happening there. But I'll let you know next month how that goes and what my verdict is, what my preferred format is. Now, next agenda point, we have Stephanie Zarabian's job post. Oh my God, how much do I love this format? It's incredible. As you said, Devin, last time, she's doing God's work there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Painstakingly <laughs> curating all the latest sales enablement roles. So if you're not following Stephanie already, please do so. We have startups in the mix. We have corporations in the mix. We've got lots of remote roles here. We've got hybrid roles. We've got on-site roles. But what is really exciting to me is just the amount of remote sales enablement roles here, which yes. I think is really a reflection of the sales enablement role can be done effectively remotely. I think otherwise, not a lot of companies would advertise those. So yeah, I think lots of great roles there, lots of great and well-known companies in the mix as well. So please make sure to check out Stephanie's post. Also, the other Stephanie, Stephanie White, she also does polls, but rather than focusing on the job side of things or on the advertised roles, she focuses on enablers that are currently looking for roles. This month, she had Aaron Prohaska. So she always shares their profile, why they're passionate about enablement and so on. So I think also for 
hiring manager is a great resource yeah. to look into if you want to see some of the talent that's out there that's looking for roles and want to get to know them before you're actually talking to them. That's a great format as well. So Stephanie and Stephanie, thank you so much as always for doing that work. I think you're doing a great job and a great service to the community. I think Stephanie White was also nominated for a Southern Amen Collective award for the contribution to the Southern Amen community. So if it was up to me, I would give both of them an award. I feel like they were both nominated. I think they were both in there and I got really excited. Yes. Okay. Awesome. We'll confirm, but amazing things. And the job list this month was like, I think the longest one yet, which is so exciting as we talked about in 2020, a lot of enablement roles being let go. Like this is so cool to see. Yeah. I really wonder whether that is companies backtracking and actually hiring for sales enablement roles again, or if it's new companies coming in the mix. Somebody should do an analysis there. Have you come across any companies that have been backpedaling since those recent layoffs? I personally haven't, but that's really interesting. I imagine there's a ton kind of, and I think Dave was talking about this in your interview too, of like, oh my gosh, we have to hire new people. We have to reskill everybody, bring the enablers back. And I'm like, yeah, you should have kept them in the first place. So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but I imagine that's a trend for sure. Yeah. Cool. So we have a few articles that we also want to talk about. So the first one up was one that you had, which was from Gartner and Showpad. What was that article all about? This was a fun one. So this article from Showpad, as you said, references a Gartner report on sales enablement platforms, or shall I say revenue enablement platforms. It came out a couple of weeks ago, but it's really interesting. So the focus is on the move from what we've historically called sales enablement platforms to holistic revenue enablement platforms to really stay in line with the shifts that we're seeing in the enablement space. So the purpose of the report, it's pretty dense. There's tons of charts. It's quite interesting. So as usual, I highly recommend everybody takes a look at this one. I know Felix will send it out in the newsletter, but the report is designed to highlight trends in revenue enablement tech and assess which vendors are already on the right track in supporting that full revenue org beyond the selling group. So a quick quote from the article just to set the stage. Revenue enablement platforms unite sales enablement functions and customer-facing revenue processes. They encompass revenue-generating roles, including customer success, marketing, and pre-sales. So the takeaways are these. The enablement tech market has expanded to beyond sellers, to folks in revenue-generating roles, as we discussed, and that vendors really need to start evolving their products, platforms, and messaging to accommodate and address the shifts that we're seeing to really support the customer journey and to build a cohesive customer experience that we can not only facilitate, but report back on for all of our key personas. So the report highlights that an increased connection to revenue intelligence through acquisition or integrations has increased the overlap of revenue enablement capabilities with revenue intelligence and sales engagement technologies. And as we know, revenue enablement's expanded scope covers so much more than just training and reporting back on the training as we've discussed. And I was thinking about your conversation with Paul Butterfield, and he talked about that focus on creating a holistic experience for the customer by threading our processes, methodology, and customer journey into all of our customer-facing teams versus just focusing on the sales side of things. And I think that becomes even more true for technology, right? You don't want to have these one-off solutions for each team. You want something that's threaded through that experience for enhanced tracking, consistency, and so on. So this report is going to help push enablement folks in that direction of this holistic view of the customer journey when it comes to procuring the right tech stack 
with that solid vision for growth and scale aligned to our revenue teams. So to give you a sense of, of what's covered here, the report basically breaks down some common or popular sales enablement technology and ranks them against how sales and other teams that are now part of this revenue enablement world are actively using that tech and also on a number of different factors. So the categories that are included here are digital content management, training, coaching, analytics and engagement, integration and platform, machine learning, conversational intelligence and digital sales rooms. Now, I have to confess that I personally have never heard the term digital sales room. I think I might be living under a rock, which is entirely possible because I don't leave the house much. But <laughs> according to Gartner, and this is at the tail end of the survey, but by 2026, 30% of B2B sales cycles will be primarily run through a DSR. So I need to get on board with this terminology ASAP. And I also realized, hey, I've actually been using a DSR. I, I used Highspot for a number of initiatives in previous roles, like onboarding playbooks, content sharing with customers via personalized microsites. And so they also sit in that category of the digital sales room. I just was not hip to the lingo, right? They are on the list. They are not one of the higher ranking DSRs because they don't have e-signature or digital commerce integrations, but we can come back to that another day. So the article has a very robust breakdown of where each vendor sits on the list. And as we said, it's not an exhaustive list of vendors. So I think they shared, I thought this was worth noting, that the vendors they chose were the ones that came up most often in Gartner's conversations with customers and also the vendors that were searched most often on the Gartner site. And so I think, Felix, you have, you're scrolling through here so we can see some of the vendors that are listed, but I mentioned Highspot, Big Tin Can, MindTickle, AppAround, SalesHood, and so many more. And in most cases, as I go through the tables here, there's not really a standout winner, but I did notice that MindTickle and Seismic topped the charts from a current state perspective meaning the particular chart I'm talking about is usage across all of the customer-facing teams that Gartner buckets into that revenue enablement group. And personally, I implemented MindTickle at an organization about seven years ago, and I actually had no choice but to use it for our entire company. Again, this was, I think, pre-revenue enablement in my world, but we use it for sales, pre-sales, support, and customers. But I guess we were kind of doing revenue enablement before we knew it, and MindTickle only had like two features at that point. But where I think this report really stands out is for folks or enablement teams that are looking to plan their budget and tech stack build out over the next few years, I would definitely check this one out so that you are making an informed decision and that you're planning for some of the predictions and assumptions where revenue enablement will kind of head in the coming years. And I shared, you know, that by 2026, 30% of sales will be done through DSRs. They also make predictions around Call recording by 2025, 50% of B2B sales organizations will record 75% of conversations with buyers. And really the trend is the sale is moving to the digital. We have to bring as much data and resources into the same place as possible. But as you and I have discussed, Felix, so many of these companies are trying to do it all and they're not all doing it well. So my question for you is, am I the only one that didn't know what a DSR was? And what are your thoughts on this trend in like revenue enablement tech? Yeah, I think you must be the only one. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I've come across it before, but I don't think it is a very much talked about term. I think it's a convenient feature, but it's not something so game-changing that right. I think it would be being talked about so much, you know? I think 
There's some specialist vendors in that space, also like sales reach, which only do sales rooms. So I do think it's very effective from a content creation point of view and really always having a one reference point. But I think it's, as always, not a silver bullet. Yeah. And there's so many different sort of skills and different sort of communication channels and mediums required to make a sale happen. So I think sales room is a nice addition and solves some issues, but it's not the be all end all. Now, in terms of revenue enablement, I'm always a bit torn. I think it is the right goal to aim for, but I think not for every company, it is the right project to tackle in the very beginning. If you look at sales enablement being more front-loaded and tackling the sales side of things and not the customer success side of things, I think a lot of companies would make a wise decision if they decided to focus on one of them first, depending on what their strategic goals are, obviously. I think revenue enablement generally is the right approach, but might not necessarily be the right starting point for a lot of companies. And again, from a technology point of view, also probably not a straight answer for you, Devin, <laughs> but an answer nonetheless. <laughs> I think it's always a philosophical question and your philosophy in terms of sourcing tech, whether you want to build a infrastructure where you have a lot of specialized microservices, so to speak, of specialist platforms that you integrate, that you can assemble depending on your needs and you can also grow based on your needs. Or if you just want to have a monolithic infrastructure where you just have one vendor that does everything good enough, but is not really specialized in different areas. Mm -hmm. If you go for the one vendor solution, my recommendation would always be to Pick somebody who is future-proof that can grow with you. In those scenarios, even if you're starting out with sales enablement, you know, a view on revenue enablement on the track might make sense. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I personally would be in the in the favor of building out those microservices and having platforms that do certain things really well and integrate them. But I do understand that that's not everybody. So I think it really depends on your sourcing strategy. Next one up in the articles that we want to share. And by the way, everything that we're talking about in this episode will also be included in the This Month in Sales Enablement newsletter. So if you are keen to have links to all of those resources straight into your inbox, into your LinkedIn inbox, as well as your email inbox, just subscribe on LinkedIn. It's the This Month in Sales Enablement newsletter. You can't miss it. It's the only one with that name. And we won't spam you. We just share some useful links. So please consider that one if you're interested. We just crossed the 1,000 subscriber mark as well. Ooh. So Mike Kunkel, we're coming for you for your 27,000 <laughs> subscribers. We'll have overtaken you soon. Cool. So the next article is a bit of an older one. It's from 2016. But I wanted to just reference it because... It talks about a really interesting topic, which is the center of excellence. And the article is from Gartner, Gartner again. And it talks about, or it asks the question, what makes a marketing center of excellence? And I recently had a catch up with a enabler in the age care space. I won't say his name just because he shared his internal viewpoints on the whole sense enablement side of things. And mm. one of the things that he said was that his enablement function is essentially set up like a center of excellence, but they just call it enablement because it is broadly better understood and less opaque than the term center of excellence. But his comments around sales enablement being set up 
like a center of excellence really made me curious about that whole space, which is why I uh, also looked at this article here. And I haven't come across any articles that specifically talk about sales enablement as a center of excellence, but this one here just talks about a marketing center of excellence and generally speaking, what makes a center of excellence. And the reason why I want to call that out is because I think it's a really interesting way to think about enablement and a very interesting way to position enablement internally, because I think there's still a lot of confusion around, as we talked about earlier, what enablement is, what enablement scope is, and so on. So they say here, and I quote, Gartner defines a center of excellence as a physical or virtual center of knowledge, concentrating existing expertise and resources in a discipline or capability to attain and sustain world-class performance and value. That really sounds like sales enablement to me. This definition can be broken down into four key elements. First, center of excellence, the need to focus on the tight scope defined around a specific capability, such as marketing analytics or digital commerce. Next, consider the location of the center of excellence, whether it's physical or virtual. Third, center of excellence should optimize and leverage resources internal to the organization, not external vendors or agencies. And lastly, a center of excellence should focus on pushing beyond standard performance norms to deliver incremental value to the organization. Center of excellence should not conduct business as usual around capability, instead drive towards excellence in a medium or channel. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting viewpoint, like around bringing those sort of skills internally, like when we think about external vendors being engaged from a sales enablement point of view, hmm. oftentimes that is focused on, I guess, training. Technology obviously also always forms part of that, but it's more of an infrastructure question from my point of view. But I guess what they're saying here is if a certain capability should be strategically embedded in an organization, which sales excellence certainly is from my point of view, it makes sense to actually form a group that looks after not just conducting business as usual around the capability, but push beyond the standard performance norms to deliver incremental value to an organization. So I think in some organizations, especially in some industries where sales enablement is not a thing, yeah. meaning anywhere outside of SaaS, probably in most cases, the center of excellence positioning could be a really useful one for enablers to really make people across the business understand what they're doing and the value that they add, because this term might be more familiar. What are your thoughts on that whole definition of center of excellence versus sales enablement and how that sort of correlates? It's funny, and I, I'm definitely putting my own spin on center of excellence when I think about the definition you described, but I think it's an amazing idea. You can create those synergies, efficiencies, and create scale where you know you have the function and the right processes for that consistent, continuous enablement. And again, you're able to build that repeatable model. So I think like enablement in general in some companies kind of becomes the center of excellence organically, I think, but I've never seen one in action. Sometimes I'll call my enablement group like it's a center of excellence. We create efficiencies, we share resources, we have yeah. content teams that are building, building once, using many. So I think it's an incredible idea. I feel like it should become something more standard in the enablement world. It just makes sense to your point. Yeah, no, absolutely. So something that I want to keep on exploring and want to understand better on how that is handled in organizations outside of SaaS, yeah. whether that sort of positioning has been used in other areas. So as I said, the person that I was speaking to um, works for a SaaS business, but in the aged care space, mm. quite a niche market similar to you, Devin, with yeah. dentistry. 
So I'm curious to hear more about it if anybody has thoughts on that one. Yeah. Now, the next one in the agenda is on how LinkedIn became a place to overshare. The crying CEO comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any angles that we haven't covered yet? <laughs> oh, we're going to get into it. I think this is such a hot topic. And I see articles and, and posts from folks daily like, I want to keep sharing my personal life. I'm a person. So I'm going to give you a, a quick recap of the article. And then I do want to talk about some of the specifics of like, what's changing and how we're using social media. So the article is, again, totally worth a read. Check it out in the newsletter. But it features a guy called Joe. And Joe shares his journey with us. He originally was like a business-focused LinkedIn user. He's in recruiting, so he definitely knows his way around the tech. And he talks about that he started sharing his personal life and experiences like mental health challenges via LinkedIn to find a way to connect with people in a more meaningful way. And guess what? When he started sharing all this personal content and these personal updates, his engagement skyrocketed, right? So for context, I didn't actually know the timeline here, but LinkedIn started in 2003 with 100,000 users. And it was known as I think a lot of us think of it as a place to find jobs, post your resumes and connect with coworkers. And now LinkedIn has over 830 million users who generate over 8 million posts and comments every day. So the article suggests that the pandemic was the turning point for LinkedIn turning to the more like personal type content for its users and that Office workers really missed the in-person interactions with their colleagues to get to know each other, build rapport. So they did turn to LinkedIn to engage with those folks to make up for that lost connection and curate some of what I think is probably that like water cooler conversation that brings us a little closer to the people we work with. And because of this interesting time in our lives and this shift in LinkedIn, boundaries between office and personal became a little bit blurred which then empowered people to start sharing more of these personal life updates with their professional coworkers, peers, and people who we learned were actually quite interested in this content and in their personal experiences. So the article mentions that people started posting these more personal updates because of engagement. So they started getting a lot more engagement versus when they would post on Facebook or TikTok, because we know those two networks are completely flooded with content and creators. And you know, it could be the algorithm on other platforms that are just pumping not interesting content into people's feeds with a lot of noise. While on LinkedIn, people found it was a lot easier to be seen and heard. Now, again, the lines of what the different social media platforms were intended for became fuzzier when folks and businesses started sharing insights around social justice issues and mental health issues and so much more on LinkedIn. And this was all during 2020. And so LinkedIn sent a survey out to a few thousand people that said 60% of the folks surveyed said their definition of professional had changed since the start of the pandemic. And Lily Zhang, who's a LinkedIn influencer and advocate, says LinkedIn's full purpose for existing is actually changing. And all of this personal sharing is great, but within reason. And that it's still important to maintain boundaries between personal and work life. And that also includes on LinkedIn. So I think you and I know, we've seen it in our feeds. A lot of people hate the personal updates and they will let you know they don't want to see it. And they'll actually, they've shifted the way that they're using LinkedIn. So they don't even deal with the newsfeed. They go to the search function, they find exactly what they need and they get the heck out. So at the end of the day, let's call it like it is. People want to get engagement on content. They want the likes, they want the comments, they want to surface up their profile, build their professional persona. And Joe, the guy that we talked about from the beginning of the article, 
he was wondering if people were just starting to share more of this personal information about their lives and maybe some false or faux vulnerability to get more engagement and to get their posts to go viral. And of course, Felix, you nailed it. I keep thinking about the crying CEO and that forced vulnerability. But as we said in that episode, I think it might just be a sign of the times. Things are changing. And they even had a consultant at the end of the article who helps people generate business on LinkedIn. And he shared his recipe for the perfect personal LinkedIn post, which is like a dash of your personal story. So, you know, your dog ran away, a business lesson. So the personal story builds up the empathy. You get the business advice tied to that. And then you ask folks for engagement. And I think the guy's called John. And he says, always just ask people to respond in the comments. But your best bet is asking for animal photos or dog photos, because that's going to give you the likes. And I am guilty of that. If you post an animal photo, I will like it. (laughs) It's like a reflex. Exactly. Like dog, cat. Yes, I will like this. But I keep thinking about that meme that came out in, I think it was like 2020, 2021 with uh, Dolly Parton. I don't know if you remember this one. It was called the Dolly Parton Challenge. And it was four squares with like Facebook, TikTok, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And you post a picture of like who you are on each of those platforms. And again, I think LinkedIn is no longer that power suit buttoned up version. It's a different version of who we are. And a lot of folks now are just using different social networks in the same way, but to reach different audiences. And so the nuances of how we used to think about those channels is shifting. And personally, I love seeing the real side of my friends, my team members, and my connections that everything in your life, your pets, your family, your hobbies, shape the work that you do and who you are and your credibility as a thought leader. And I think we have to think, you know, people are not cardboard cutouts of themselves. They are real people and they have an authentic side. But of course, I'll ask you, Felix, and I'll ask our audience, what is your point of view on personal content on LinkedIn? Well, I don't have anything against it. I think there's a problem with authenticity when it becomes too manufactured. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of cringeworthy personal content out there where you can tell, especially people that consider themselves influencers. Yeah. And it's basically, you can see the content schedule, you know, and the content calendar where it says on Wednesday, a personal post (laughs) featuring my dog, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think if it's spontaneous and authentic and you do it to truly affect change or really make people think differently about a topic, I think that's fine. If it comes not out of of a place of self-service, I think there's too much cringe going on on LinkedIn, to be honest. Yeah. I might be a bit cynical, but I think you should be yourself. You should always be yourself, but it should not have an agenda in the background, a self-serving agenda at least. So I, I think that's kind of my viewpoint, which was also, as we discussed, I think in the last episode, the main criticism of the crying CEO that he essentially had that self-serving agenda and yeah just wanted attention and likes and yeah I think that people were angry in that particular case because he laid people off but mm-hmm. I think there are other scenarios where you have the same sort of notion with a different backdrop I won't make it part of my content strategy put it that way <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling what about you what can we expect more photos of your doc then My dog, yes. But as I mentioned before, I lead a very boring life. So my LinkedIn profile reflects my everyday. Yeah. But there should be more of Blanche Devereaux on there. So I will make a point of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's also a personal post, you know. This is true. Just sharing the mundane moments. So maybe um, 
Maybe there can be a new content category yeah. where you can start a, a trend there. <laughs> she has eaten a few <laughs> enablement books in her day, so maybe she knows more about enablement than I think. So we'll see. <laughs> That's right. Awesome. So the next item that we have on the list was the publication from the Rain Group. It was an ebook, particularly on sales training, and the title was 26 Topics to Boost Sales Team Performance. So what are your thoughts on that one? You picked that one out. I did. What's that one all about? Yeah, I'm going to keep this one pretty brief because it's another one that it's basically a workbook that folks can use. But essentially, Rain Group conducted a number of surveys around the top areas where enablement can lean in with skills training to make the greatest impact on their reps. And how they position it is, it's hard to know which skills are the most important to focus on when it comes to building high quality training. Again, they help to identify the uh, major skill deficits in areas that influence purchasing decisions the most. Now, this ebook is great because it gives anybody that's reading it thought starters based on data to rethink how they're approaching skills training. And the topics highlighted, again, rooted in data, are everything from building trust and rapport, qualifying the deal, navigating objections, personas, again, like the basics. But the best part about this report is that each section provides examples for getting started with the topic. So frameworks, methodologies, best practices, workflows, and more. They even share a qualification methodology called FAINT, which I'd never heard of before. It's funds, authority, interest, need, and timing. Slightly more robust than FANT, but not quite as intense as Medic, one of my favorites. Again, I would say this is a great reference piece for folks that are new to enablement, that have a small team, and could use a starting point on some of these frameworks and best practices to ensure they're building high-impact sales skills, focusing on the right places. So much to dig into. You know I love a framework and an example. I hate starting from a blank slate. This is great for anybody who's looking for some thought starters to shake up their approach. So it was a good one. Awesome. Awesome. So again, we'll, we'll drop a link to that one in the newsletter as well for anybody who's keen to take a look. The next one that I briefly wanted to touch on was from Nick Lawrence, and he was talking about whether or not sales enablers need sales experience and need to have been carrying a bag. What are your thoughts on that one, Devin? Do people need to carry a bag to be a sales enabler? Absolutely not. Yeah. I do not have sales experience. I am a sales trainer and a trainer, and there is just so much more to enablement, as I think is covered in this article. And it's all about the other skills that we bring to the table beyond selling and really immersing yourself in the world that you're supporting, taking on mentors of your sales leaders, understanding their journey, sitting with your team. There's so much more that goes into enablement beyond having carried a bag, but there are ways that you can lean in to build those experiences to be a credible partner and to support that organization. What are your thoughts, Felix? Yeah, no, I think so too. I think it does help, but again, it comes down to empathy, right? I think having been a salesperson helps to empathize with the sales team and to really understand their real world. I don't think it's necessary, but yeah, I think you have to be proactive about actually understanding your internal customers mm -hmm. as well as your customer customers. That understanding is really crucial to actually add value and to make sure that you're not adding bureaucracy or making their life harder exactly. with initiatives that might sound good on paper, but don't really translate into the day-to-day -day work of sellers. So I think this is also something that is relevant to the other social posts that we really want to touch on. Aaron Evans, who has also been previously a guest on the State of Sales Enablement podcast, he was 
asking the question if enablement is getting in the way of selling. And he was just calling out a few things that he's come across, like too much training, 200 page playbooks, <laughs> no visibility of the enablement roadmap, constant process adaption and change, another new system or tool, which to me are all reflections of enablement bureaucracy. I think there's a danger if you don't really have that empathy as a sales enabler to actually understand what the day-to-day -day looks like in a seller's life yeah, and really what they need and really the fact that you need information in real time to actually add value and those sort of things. I think there's a danger of just introducing bureaucracy that doesn't really help anybody. So I think my advice just would be like, I've been called a carrying before as a salesperson, but also as an enabler. So I do understand those pressures and I do understand what it's like to have to close a deal and to really juggle multiple conversations at once. And I think the last thing you need really is a 200 page playbook where you, <laughs> <laughs> while you're on a Zoom call, figure out what sort of resources or how to share resources or what sort of resources are appropriate for that sales stage and so on. So I think. Nick's and Aaron's comments are in that way related. And mm -hmm. I think you have to get both right to really be effective. If you turn it around, the worst case scenario really is if you don't have any sales experience as a sales enabler and you don't really have a lot of empathy for the salespeople and you create a lot of bureaucratic overhead, yeah, I think your days are numbered if you operate that way. I've seen in the corporate environment, I almost want to call it people making whole careers out of adding bureaucracy, you know, setting up <laughs> meetings with uh, 20 senior leaders in a room, just rehashing things that had already been discussed, creating resources that nobody will ever access, you know, not necessarily in the sales enablement space, but also in other corporate functions. So I think sales enablement cannot operate in that way. Mm -hmm. It comes back to the business value proposition that we spoke about earlier, and it also comes down to the sustainability of a sales enablement career and whether or not you will be sooner or later be made redundant within the organization. Yeah. I think you just need to future-proof yourself in any way. And I think that's part of it, certainly. What are your thoughts? Have you come across any enablers that at that level of bureaucracy? Oh. Without calling out names? <laughs> without a doubt. And I honestly, like, I ask myself and my team every day, is what we're doing in service to the team we support? and done in the way they want to and need to be supported? Yeah. Or are we checking a box for ourselves because we look really good and we're delivering this 200-page playbook? That is not our job. Our job is to empower the teams that we support, wow our customers, and make it as easy for the folks we're supporting to execute flawlessly and spend the bulk of their time on ge revenue-generating activities and so much more than that. And if that isn't our only focus, making it easier for our teams to be effective, then we're in the wrong business, to your point. It's not about us. And I have to tell myself that and my team that it's not about us. We are in service to the organization. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I think considering that our customers are sales, I think we need to be really proactive and you know intentional about market research, so to speak, yeah. and actually asking sales all the time, you know, do you find this useful? How can we make this more useful? And so on. So I think that's a great way to make sure that you're actually adding value. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a wrap for this week. We've covered a whole bunch. As I said, we have the newsletter come out with all the links that you could possibly need. So with all the research <laughs> that we've covered, all the social posts and all the events. So if you're interested in receiving that newsletter, please look for 
this month in the sales enablement in a newsletter. So just type it in, in the search and will pop up. As always, thank you so much for joining and we will speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.